Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Having symptoms, this is your largest indication, and this is what should drive our behavior. If we have symptoms or we sense something coming on, that's when we should really isolate, really be careful. All the logical, common sense things that we know about illness. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. All right, here we go. So, we're excited to be back for round two of the SARS COVID series. So, last week, if you didn't hear that episode, I would totally go back to that one first. We talked about asymptomatic transmission. We talked about kids going back to school, which a lot of people are interested in. And what was the last one? Immunity. And just in those 45 minutes, there was a lot packed in, but wait till we get to today. So, last week, I felt was our non controversial topic. Like, it feels a little bit clear. I mean, I'm certain that people would say that. That was the lesser of the controversies. This week is still very balanced that we are including some controversial topics. So anyway, I hope you're leaning in because it's going to be fun. And don't worry, my whole job during this is to take great show notes. So we have exactly the studies and often the entire abstract. I don't know how much we'll be able to fit in the show notes. So it might have to link out to a blog post. But if you happen to not listen to last week's episode and you are not going to go back and listen to it, let me tell you about our guest. It is the lovely Jenna Griffith, who I first met at a conference last fall. And she really wowed me with all of her knowledge about blue light and melatonin and what's going on in the physiology of the body. And that episode is really just about uh, maybe five episodes back where we talk about kind of light and health. But this week, Jenna is sharing basically her investigative research skills because she's a second career dietitian. Early on in her career worked in many facets of I think, news, magazine, maybe even publishing a lot of things. But now she is the director of nutrition for Culpepper Wellness Foundation and Powell Wellness Center, which is a top-ranking medical wellness center in Virginia. And she's been the lead instructor for Charlottesville Community Education Program for the last 10 years and also has a small private practice specializing in digestive health and chronic pain. She's got certifications from the Institute of Psychology of Eating, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and uses food and nature as a doorway to improve mind, body, and spirit. So there's so many more things I could say that are great about Jenna, but let's jump in. Welcome back, Jenna. Thank you. Cool to be here. Thanks. All right. So today we're talking testing, treatment, 
and things that, you know, we don't always think about as treatment, like masks, et cetera. So let's jump into the testing because that makes sense. And this is a bit of a confusing topic. So take it away. Yeah, for sure. So the main process used for diagnosing is uh, PCR, right? So RT, reverse transcriptase, polymerase chain reaction. So RT-PCR or PCR for short. So there's been lots of controversy about PCR testing. And we'll get to the antibody testing, too. So basically, in the most layman's terms, an enzyme called like polymerase moves along a segment of your DNA, and it reads its code and assembles a copy and amplifies it. So this is what has been used for testing. But there are problems with this. And this is kind of huge because so many things are based on the testing, right? Lots of examples, lots of information out there if people want to dig deeper. So in the beginning, probably around March 14th, it's explicitly stated by the CDC that the RT-PCR test does not rule out bacterial infection or co-infections from other viruses. So this is what they put on their website, right? And this I'm reading, positive results are indicative of active infection with 219-NCoV but do not rule out bacterial infection or co-infection with other viruses. And then another bullet point, they state the agent detected may not be the definite cause of disease. So, you know, that's a little shaky for one. Is that still Um, on their site right now? I'm just typing, but I don't have the link for that one. Well, interestingly enough, they changed the language. So March 14th, it said uh, results are for the presumptive identification of 2019 NCoV RNA. And then on March 16th, it says results are for the identification of 2019 NCoV RNA. So I know those two are different. I'm not sure if it has that now, but because you know, I got this when it first was put up in terms of the first language I talked about, I can't imagine that it says it is absolutely indicating it when it isn't, right? But I can attest to whether it's still up there right the second. And importantly, so there's a lot of nuance to this, of course, right? So according to Carrie Mullis, he is the scientist and inventor of the RT-PCR test. According to him, it should not be used to diagnose disease. He says these tests cannot detect free infectious viruses at all. They can only detect proteins that are believed in some cases wrongly to be a virus or unique to that specific virus. So yeah, this presents problems. So the fourth part to this is that there was a study that came out on March 5th that revealed up to 80% false positives. The study was titled Potential False Positive Rate Among the Asymptomatic Infected Individuals in Close Contacts of COVID-19 Patients. So um, and that has since been retracted and without a cause. So many people referred to this study in the beginning because up to 80% false positive is, you know, that's a really large number, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with the PCR test. You know, the shortest, quickest, uh, click note version. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I would say for one other piece is that dozens of different RT-PCR tests are being used, right? Each with slightly different definitions of what constitutes a positive case. So there was a Canadian independent researcher of infectious diseases. His name is David Crow, C-R-O-W-E. And he analyzed the instruction manuals of the 33 different PCR tests approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And what he found was so confusing that he ended up 
describing them as a potpourri of tests. So essentially what's happening, based on what he says, is that the amount of DNA extracted from a patient's sample can vary widely. And most tests have a different definition of what they're looking for. And then worse than that, then the differences of what they're looking for is the way of defining whether they have found it or not. So it can react with other coronaviruses. Which we Uh, talked about last week. There's four common cold coronaviruses, which you cited last week. And if you've had one of those common colds, then you might have a positive test result or the actual study that we cited. It was in the journal Cell and it talked about up to 42%, I believe is exactly the number, that 42% of people may have had herd immunity before we even knew what SARS-CoV-2 was. Doesn't write to you? Right. 40 to 60%. Correct. I have a link for that if you want to. I can send it to you. Okay. And then further, if people want more things to go back and look at. So there's another professor at Anglia Ruskin University in UK. His name is Stephen Buston, B-U-S-T-I-N, and he's arguably the world's top expert on quality control PCR. Um, He says on his podcast what I said before, which was the amount of DNA extracted from a patient's sample can vary widely. And then most tests have a different definition of what they're looking for. So that's a podcast that he did. So people can look into that if they want. In summary, it can be argued that we have not detected this virus with certainty and with absolution. So that's a big deal. And as you said yesterday, this is the best we have right now. And furthermore, we do need testing because how on earth could you know? No one wants to be infected. And this disease is most infectious when you're symptomatic. But if people think, especially a young person who doesn't have significant symptoms and doesn't think it's much, right? And they're infecting people. This is when you'd really need to at least be able to get some positives, right? You need to be able to validate so you have something to go with. So we were talking in general, like PCR, again, is DNA-based testing, like extracts the DNA and amplifies it. And there is some arguing about this in general. I mean, I still use PCR for other reasons. It's been around for almost 20 years, I believe that's correct. And pretty much every lab that I use has their own SARS-CoV-2 test now. I don't pay much attention to them because at first I thought, hmm, maybe I'll take some of these. Maybe I'll test my family. Maybe I'll just see what they say. But as you said, there was a lot of hubbub about, is this even going to be accurate? And so I just decided I would just save $100 and not buy these tests for now. And of course, there's uh, more and more free testing all over the place. But every single test, because I will talk to past clients sometimes and I'll say every single company offers a test now. So they're like everywhere. I mean, accuracy is interesting. So this is very useful if you've got a person symptomatic and they are ill and you know you want to know what kind of PPE to use, right? Personal protective equipment. But this may explain why it seems that when family members are sometimes tested and it's positive, I've heard stories, right, where people are tested positive but have absolutely zero symptoms. And so this is essentially why this could possibly happen, right? Correct. Yes, this could give a solid reason why... Yes, you could be positive, right, just because you've had one of the past coronaviruses and not be infectious or have COVID-19 in that moment, Mm -hmm. for sure. So that's PCR testing, right? And now so you kind of went into antibody testing, which Mm -hmm. is what everybody has now, right? So there are so many companies that are doing antibody testing. And, you know, they have their own percentage of sensitivity and specificity. But this is also an issue with the antibody testing as well. And 
on the CDC site and on many of these antibody testing sites, they pretty much say the same thing, that you know this doesn't preclude positivity or a positive result just for COVID-19, meaning it could detect one of these past four coronaviruses, common coronaviruses that we named just the other day in the other episode as well. So we don't know for sure. It seems like maybe the symptom being symptomatic is kind of one of our biggest concerns then. I mean, maybe. I'm just arguing here that that's possible because otherwise, without symptoms, I'm just thinking about this as a person because, you know, at the end of the day, I want to say, I mean, again, this is kind of erring on the side of opinion more so than anything, right? I'm not citing a study, but if I'm person trying to decide what to think about this, I just feel more confused, right? I'm like, oh, great. So like testing is not even accurate, etc. So if I'm symptomatic, I need to be very cautious. If I'm not symptomatic, then the jury is out. What precautions do I need to do, right? Anyway, not to interrupt you. I'm just thinking of from a logical standpoint as a listener, what do I do with this information? Right. For sure. Yeah, you know, that's where we get back to we come full circle, which we mentioned in the last episode, is that having symptoms, this is your largest indication. And this is what should drive our behavior. If we have symptoms or, you know, we sense something coming on, that's when we should really isolate, really be careful. All the logical, common sense things that we know about illness, for sure. You know, what's interesting about that, just from like backing up regular old illness is our body kind of sends alerts out a few days in advance before we have this full-fledged illness. So we should actually talk about common symptoms of COVID. I feel like it's necessary to mention, like, what are those common symptoms of COVID-19, which seem to continue to develop? Because remember when loss of taste was not a symptom and now it is. So it's, you know, fever, which is what sometimes like at our local swimming pool, they check the temp before they allow kids to go in. But it could be cough and shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, which overlaps a lot to other things. Fatigue overlaps to a lot of things. Muscle and body aches overlaps, headache, but new loss of taste or smell, which I know, I don't know if we're going to talk about zinc today. I hope we do. Congestion, runny nose, sore throat, (laughs) nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. I mean, this is a challenging list because it is very, very similar to other things. So I don't know. I don't want to say that this is right or wrong. Like, you know, they lose oxygen, the people that are really suffering, they lose oxygen. And I can't remember, like it says here from the CDC website, they they may get bluish lips or face, but this is a side note. The ER nurse in my family that works with these patients, I think she had said last week, sometimes they don't turn, you know, they don't exhibit the same symptoms. So it's a really goofy manifestation. Anyway, I'll try to stay away from the what ifs, right? But I'll let Jenna get back to her, to her her research here. No, that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, I think the symptoms are just so broad. And because, you know, it manifests differently in each person, because we are unique, we have different mechanisms that are in operation or in different levels of functioning immune systems, different reactions to inflammation or hypoxia, right? There's so many ways that it can manifest, including not manifesting at all. I mean, that's part of the confusion, you know, and this is what happened in the beginning, right? Whenever anybody had the slightest bit of, oh, I have a scratchy throat or I have a headache, it's like, it's like, oh my God, oh my God, right? And then Mm -hmm. the panic sets in. And a lot of people early on were going to hospitals that had anxiety because, you know, how could you not, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, COVID, oh, COVID, it has to be. And often, as we see with even testing, so many people turn out to be negative, 70, 80% in the beginning, especially. Even Dr. Burks said that in several different 
you know, television appearances and interviews, like 80% of the people test negative. So that's, we're going down. So anyway, just to get off of symptoms or back to, I'm not sure if there's anything else we can say about testing. So we have, and so let's assume that it's as solid as we're going to get and just move forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you have this ring that measures heart rate variability, resting heart rate, et cetera. Last time I got ill, um, we were on a ski trip and my kid was sick and I got run down. And so the dangerous part about feeling run down and then getting stressed out is that your body, when it fights an illness, it's already activating that sympathetic or fight or flight nervous system. And that changes your heart rate, decreases your heart rate variability, which makes you more susceptible. And so actually, it'll kind of detect by your heart rate variability, what your temp is for a few days before just very slight changes that you might be either take it easy, or you might be coming down with something. And it was telling me that a few days before. And so it's kind of interesting. I think body awareness is a big deal. And also staying calm. I mean, my daughter had like, you know, cold light or not good symptoms the other day. And I was like, well, we're just going to, you know, give you some immune support because <laughs> that's what we can do. And then the next day she's fine. Probably didn't mean anything, but like, that's my natural reaction. Like I try to stop and say, use my natural reaction, which is to be supportive. If you're feeling run down, sleep, take care. Like now, non-negotiably, like I don't do anything else besides take care of myself to try to like bounce back at the very, very, very early stages. For sure. On to yeah. treatment. Yeah. The body awareness is such a big deal, right? And so I feel like we are still disconnected. And we talk about this in nutrition. We're disconnected to how we feel or what's going on in other parts of our body. Like it's a separate entity, right? So same situation to just reiterate what you said for sure. We need to be a little bit more aware of how we're feeling and then act accordingly, right? Rest. And if nothing else, like a lot of this downtime for people, even though stressful, right, depending on your situation, uh, I think it might have, I know for some people, it helped them to just stop and do resting because they had no choice, right? I mean, when we're at home, even though anxiety and stress might be higher, people at some point have to let go. So anyway, I'm sure that this was a big lesson for many people emotionally, physically, spiritually. Mm -hmm. So yes. Under the treatment, I actually do have like a study about the psychological impacts. But in treatment, I think we're going to talk about ultraviolet light, vitamin D, vitamin C, some different things. So go ahead and jump in wherever you would like. Yes. In terms of treatment, to me, this has been the most frustrating part of watching all of this unfold. Because, you know, as we know, there are so many different ways to support our immune function. And so some people in conventional world don't like the use of immune boosting or immune supportive as a phrase. But really, it's effective because if we're supporting our health, right, and we want to support our health, a system of the body is the immune system. And so if we're supporting our health with nutrition, then we can support our immune system with nutrition. It's the same thing. And what is happening the last 50 years is that we have, you know, a crisis in health. We have a crisis in planetary health, in individual health. And many of us, it can be boiled down to we have toxicity or infection of some kind or deficiency of some kind. And so first, I just wanted to say that some people, like our idea of what health might be, has changed. And I think that needs to go back to a certain standard, which is we're thriving, we're not taking medications, we wake up with energy, all those things. And I don't think that's the case for a majority of people today. So, you know, when people say I'm healthy, but I take X, Y, and Z, that is not true health. 
you might be bridging your way there, it might be going there, but still. So I think it's just important that we reassess and redefine what we think health is. So for one, yeah, there are so many treatments. Well, that's an exaggeration. There are treatments. Let's just say, first of all, there's orthomolecular medicine, and that's just a fancy way of saying there's vitamins and minerals, right? There are people who have exhibited early symptoms, and we don't know what they are, right? It could be some kind of viral illness. It could be bacteria. And, you know, they've used vitamins A, C, zinc, melatonin. Like, these have been the most popular ones that I see, you know, different protocols out there. This is, a lot of this is anecdotal. But I will say, for example, vitamin C, that's been used for maybe 50 years. Richard Chang, who is a doctor in China, had a video up and he also has a study that he wrote up based on his treatment of 50 Chinese patients. And he basically gave them 10 to 20 grams mm-hmm. per day mm-hmm. of vitamin C. And, you know, they all were cured. They're all fine. So, you know, the title of the study was Can Early and High IV Dose Vitamin C Prevent and Treat COVID-19? And that was in... Medicine and Drug Discovery. And that was March 5th of 2020. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, no, exactly. So there's a lot of controversy about vitamin C. I don't think there should be, but there is. It's very safe. (laughs) Right. It is safe. I think also what's happening with these more severe cases and when we have such high inflammation, this can be useful. It's just that, you know, the key thing with treatment, you know, like I like to say, I'm just a girl sitting at our kitchen table, like reading lots of different things, right? And what seems to be the consensus is that treating whatever it is early is the key. But once we, our innate system is no longer useful, because that's nonspecific and early, once we are past that time into days and hours, This is when our inflammatory processes really kick up. This is when the well-known cytokine storms happen, things Mm -hmm. like that. That's when things can go to a more dangerous place. And so for many of these people who have a more serious disease effect, that's when some of these things can be used. But, you know, we have to remember, like, between 98 and 99% of people recover. So, you know, it's just for these other people that it has become serious. And so what do we do with them, right? So there are different stages and different interventions at each stage. So I believe early on, this is when all these things, orthomolecular medicine, you know, vitamins A, C, E, zinc, melatonin, all these things can be used with success. Mm -hmm. There is uh, one doctor in Texas, doesn't have like a high profile, nobody knows about who he is, Whenever anybody has anything, he gives them a certain amount of vitamin C and D per hour and kefir because of probiotics and the benefits of probiotics. And within eight hours, based on just those three things, 90% of people are feeling better. Again, this is anecdotal stuff. He's never done a study. And it's really important to personalize all this stuff. You know, we can read, there's so much information everywhere. It's like, so you have all these people taking lots of vitamin C now. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. I have my own opinions about that, but I'll tell you right now, if something was going on and I didn't feel well, then yes, I'd be using this kind of stuff, especially early on. I appreciate all of your qualifications there and I would like to insert some as well. So what you're saying 
would be applied to all illness as well, right? So if you catch this early and you support early, it's very possible. I would say, like, I can tell you the exact day and what the symptoms feel like of catching that early, right? If you go to bed and support, you may get ahead of it and not really have a problem or it may be much less severe. So the mechanism, vitamin C does many things, right? It was kind of an original antiviral that's been touted for a long, long time. We had Dr. Jeannie Drisco on talking about vitamin C overall a few months ago because there's an NIH study using it in cancers. But vitamin C in high doses is not technically dangerous. It's protective of glutathione, a master antioxidant, which is so critical for the lungs and the liver to do its job. It does tons of other stuff. But what happens when you take too much vitamin C? You have diarrhea. So it's a water-soluble vitamin. So I'm just kind of backing up for like obvious things. It's a water-soluble vitamin. You can technically overdose other types, but water-soluble vitamins, which are Bs and Cs, the side effect is your body gets rid of it. But you were talking about vitamin A and D. Those are fat-soluble vitamins. We still give very large doses of those. And sometimes it's talked about the concern for toxicity. And if you were concerned about toxicity of vitamin A, they usually check liver enzymes. However, I did a lot of digging and research on this recently. I do see people like uh, supplement companies or certain people recommending very high doses of vitamin A in the tens of actually in the 100,000 range. And I think that's a little negligent to say that just kind of openly as a public health measure. But there are studies out there. It's many thousands that people do use. However, taking 5,000 units of vitamin A, I'm just mentioning is shown to improve secretory IgA, which is one of my favorite immune system markers uh, that we can easily get. So we can see, you know, the secretory IgA is like lines the intestinal cells in the immune system. And so anyway, we know that vitamin A can support that. And then zinc is a mineral and it actually is kind of difficult to get minerals inside of the cells or to like have, it's a really common deficiency as well. And if you have the information about zinc deficiency compared to COVID symptoms, you should share that. But a mineral like zinc, it's a very common deficiency, but it can be kind of hard. You take small amounts a little more frequently and you kind of help it anyway. Again, personalized, but I just wanted to mention, since we were talking about all of them, I just kind of wanted to qualify them a little bit more. I hope that was okay. Yeah, absolutely. Please. Yes. We all go off on our own tangents here. But yeah, I did a post a few months back about the similarities between zinc deficiency and COVID-19. And so I think also what's important to remember, though, is that, and this is what we're talking layman's terms, when the body is ill, these nutrients are depleted. So is it that these nutrients are depleted beforehand or is, that the Ill, or is it that the illness is depleting these nutrients, right? So, I mean, that could be. So, like, let's take vitamin D. That's probably, I think there are about 20 studies ongoing right now regarding COVID and vitamin D. The earliest one that has been done was from Grassroots Health. I think I sent that link. And so, like, low vitamin D may increase the risk of severe COVID from 2 to 12 times, right? It depends on what paper and what study. But, you know, it's becoming incredibly clear that vitamin D is a big issue. And even, uh, I remember early on, they did a preliminary study of Somalis living in Stockholm, Sweden, and they accounted for 40% of the COVID-related deaths, even though they make up less than 1% of the population. So northern latitude, darker skin. Well, can I mention why that would be, though? It's because when you have more melanin in your skin or darker skin, you need more sun exposure to get the same vitamin D. So if you live in a different place in Sweden, in the Northern Hemisphere, you're not getting as much 
sunlight to manufacture your own vitamin D as well. Plus, the vitamin D, it's not like it just goes through your skin. It's like, all right, awesome. Go do your job. It's like a machine. Your body has to basically activate it. It becomes D2 in the liver and it becomes D3 in the kidneys. And some people have issues with a vitamin D receptor gene. So actually, just as a total side note, I don't know if this is interesting. We used to, and sometimes we still do, give hyper doses of vitamin D2 as the dose of choice or drug of choice pharmacy-wise. And at least a couple of years ago, there was research finally coming out like, oh, maybe we should just give vitamin D3, the active form. <laughs> like, Yeah, why wouldn't you just give the active form instead of the step before that? I'm, I'm not really sure why we don't do that. But I still sometimes see people on those lower vitamin D2. Anyway, I'm just mentioning how why would someone because to elaborate or to just like emphasize what you said there, you had those of Somali descent with darker skin made up 40%, I think, of the deaths you said, even though they make up 1% of the population in, in Sweden, they also had low vitamin D. Was that the situation? Yeah, exactly. So also important to know, right? So vitamin D is very complex. We all know, well, a lot of us know it's a hormone. It's not necessarily a vitamin. And vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency and has been a worldwide problem. I mean, it's one thing that conventional, natural, alternative, integrative, everyone agrees on is low vitamin D. What people disagree on is what's the cause for that and what are we doing to correct it? Just one thing I put in about what you said in terms of vitamin D and how it's made right in the skin, the kidney, and the liver. If you don't have sufficient magnesium, you're not going to be making vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So many are tying low D to serious deficiency of magnesium. So, you know, that's just something to consider when Which you're... Which is going to be related taking... to stress, by the way, because we're going to dump it with that. And then also, if you have low vitamin D, you're going to have, like, it's going to be hard. But I have another study about it's impossible to have homeostasis in the microbiome. So do yeah. you mind if I and... read a little bit about the vitamin D study here that we have in front of us from Nutrients? Please. Okay, so it's a March 12, 2020 study in Nutrients, a review called Evidence that Vitamin D Supplementation Could Reduce Risk of Influenza and COVID-19 Infections and Deaths. So basically, it talks about inflammatory processes, pro-inflammatory cytokines that produce inflammation and injures the lining of lungs, leading to pneumonia, as well as increasing concentrations of just general inflammation. I'll say it like that. So many observational studies and clinical trials reported that vitamin D supplementation could reduce the risk of influenza where others did not. Evidence supporting the role of vitamin D in reducing risk of COVID-19 includes that the outbreak occurred in winter, a time when 25-hydroxy vitamin D concentrations are the lowest, that the number of cases in the Southern Hemisphere near the end of the summer are low, that vitamin D deficiency has been found to contribute to acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that case fatality rates increase with age and chronic disease morbidity, both of which are associated with lower 25 D concentration, hydroxy D concentration. To reduce risk of infection, it's recommended that people at risk of influenza and or COVID-19 consider taking 10,000 IUs daily of vitamin D3 for a few weeks to rapidly raise 25 hydroxy D concentrations, followed by 5,000 IUs per day. The goal should be to raise these concentrations above 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. For treatment of people who become infected with COVID-19, higher D3 doses might be useful. Randomized control trials and larger population studies should be conducted to evaluate these recommendations. It'd be fun to have just a post on all the studies about D, but yeah. I just wanted to share that. Sure. Yeah. Excellent. For sure. The one that I talked about from Grassroots, which was one of the first that came out, I think it was April 21st. It, it was a letter. It was not yet peer-reviewed. 
and they looked at 212 patients in three separate hospitals in Southern Asia. And so those with levels of vitamin D above 30 nanograms per milliliter had the mildest symptoms, right? So I think 34, from what I remember looking at all the different studies and trials going on, 34 was sort of the magic number. Like above that, the rates of death were like single digits. And then when you were below 20, below 30, then it raised, right? Certainly the death rate was much, much higher. So it's pretty clear the vitamin D right? I mean, I'd rather have someone take my vitamin D level than my temperature, but you know, that's just me. Um, anyway, but I just want to say one or two more things about vitamin D just so people know where and why. So the elderly, right? Nursing home residents, right? Who are inside a lot, who are not getting morning sun, afternoon sun, you know, those people at higher latitudes, cities with high air pollution, all have lower vitamin D across the board, and they are disproportionately affected by all disease, not just COVID-19. So this is an issue. So also, no, like there is controversy about how to increase vitamin D. We talked about magnesium, that being a factor in increasing vitamin D, for sure. Also, just our fear of the sun and not getting enough morning and afternoon sun. So there are many ways to do it. And certainly, I wouldn't be opposed. I think I was at some point in my nutrition career, maybe even as early as last year. I wasn't a big fan of taking, you know, exogenous vitamin D. But in light of all this information and all the research I've done, you know, it makes sense to me, again, just me, the girl sitting at the kitchen table, I might consider based on a test, which I consider, I encourage people to get their own tested so they know what their levels are, right? By the way, I don't have any affiliation, but I believe you can get one uh, direct lab. Just do it. There are consumer-based labs out there where you can do it on your own or certainly, of course, through your doctor. But I believe that we should be testing our vitamin D levels. Mm -hmm. So vitamin D has almost like a reciprocal and very symbiotic relationship with vitamin A. And so sometimes they work together. So if one is low, it's going to affect the other. And there's just so much more. I mean, if that's relying on the balance of these two. So, but vitamin A, I'll just say, you know, it's super important for the immune system. And, you know, we could, again, talk for hours about each one of these. But vitamin A, it's dangerous in high doses. But what the research shows is it's important if you're deficient, you know, to then correct that. But if you're not, then taking too much vitamin A causes problems. So, you know, again, this should be personalized. We should get our levels tested and see mm -hmm. what's happening. Sure. We're also missing a lot of the vitamin A that we used to eat in terms of like organ meats, right? We're not getting as much of vitamin A. We're getting beta carotene, but the conversion rate is not that great. So conversion uh, from beta carotene, what you get from, you know, carrots to retinol, what you need in your body is not as right. super efficient. Right. Exactly. So there's an issue there. There's also an issue with light and all those other factors. So vitamin A still is important. There are more natural doctors who are practicing who have used vitamin A, vitamin D and vitamin C when somebody is ill. There's definitely videos and things like that. There's a Dr. David Brownstein who's been criticized, but he's used vitamin A, D, and C to really help people pull out of that inflammatory cytokine storm that they were spiraling down into. 
So it can be used, like, right, with the right person at the right time in the right amount. So that's all I really would say about that. You know, zinc has been used for so long. Zinc is a big issue. The lack of zinc, it could be also copper plays into that. You know, we're very low in copper. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I want to get too much into that because mm-hmm. it can just go down a whole other pathway. But I will say, and this is bridging over into more conventional treatments, that hydroxychloroquine, which, you know, has been also out there, controversial, has been used off-label by doctors for months to help people in early stages. And we don't see that on mainstream media, but I've seen and spoken to many doctors. Their patients call up and they have what they believe could be COVID-19. They give them hydroxychloroquine, zinc, or azithromycin, or some other antibiotic, and that's it. And some doctors who have become more outspoken about it have put up their own individual videos and say, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what I've always done. I'm getting more pushback now from pharmacies who are telling me, hey, you're not allowed to give out hydroxychloroquine because it's gotten embroiled in politics. But, you know, this is what people have been using. And hydroxychloroquine has been used for 60, 70 years. It's not a new drug. But in terms of its use for COVID-19, you know, then you have the controversy level raises many levels. But that's just being done right now. But this is not talked about. I will say in the beginning, there was a Dr. Zelenko. I believe he was in, it might have been northern New York. And he was very successful. And last I saw, this was very early on, he was up to 1,500 or 2,000 different people that he treated successfully with hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And just to say, zinc becomes sort of like a gateway for hydroxychloroquine, helps usher zinc into the cell, which is, you know, like, again, a very crude way to explain what was happening and why those two were working so well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what's been being used conventionally for many months now by doctors. Do you have that list of zinc deficiency symptoms? So I am biased and I think that we treat a lot of conditions that are micronutrient deficiencies. You can get a few nutrients tested via your doctor. You can order a few via direct labs. There's a few comprehensive micronutrient testing companies. I use a couple of them. I'm just saying, like, I know it's kind of annoying to get this information and like, well, that's great, but how do I test that? You can test this relatively reasonably, right. two to 300 bucks for the test. It's on the main page of my website. I think this is so important, but I might be like one in, I might just be a dork and I'm like, I feel like it's so important. I don't feel like other people think it's as important as I do, it, it but it's out like it's available if you want it just by itself. I'm just letting you know, it's not like we're giving you this information. You can't go get it you know, we can give it to you. We can get it for you. So anyway, I'm just saying, I don't want this to be like any type of sales pitch. I want this to be a service. I just want you to know that you have options. (laughs) So yeah. And so my bias also lies with natural, right? Because I do believe deficiencies are at the root of so many things that are going on today. So but because you asked, yeah, like it all lines up. It's kind of interesting. And not to say that COVID-19 doesn't exist. And it's just a zinc deficiency. That's not what we're saying. It's just that, you know, the symptoms line up, right? So loss of taste and smell. This is, I'll read zinc deficiency symptoms, loss of appetite, loss of taste and smell, diarrhea, fatigue, chronic cough, lowered immunity, 
susceptibility to infections, especially pneumonia and elevated C-reactive protein, you know, which points to inflammation. And that lines up pretty well with the COVID-19 symptoms. And this sent me down a rabbit hole. So that's why it's on my mind and I have it here. So what else? Besides the hydroxychloroquine and zinc being successful, we have ACE inhibitors, proton pump inhibitors, and many other drugs create zinc deficiencies. So like, you know, and just, you know the over-the-counter reflux stuff. Yes, for sure. And just as a side note, you know, that's known and, you know, we're not virologists and medical personnel, but ACE2 receptors are the primary entry for COVID-19 into the cell with the help of a protease. And, you know, there's a lot of information about that and all the mechanisms. And definitely we're not experts there, but that's a big issue. But back to zinc, I mean, lowered zinc also translates to lowered vitamin A. And so that decreases immunity and then has downstream effects on vitamin D because like I said, A and D, you know, they have a very close relationship. And this is, I feel like a really important issue. Zinc competes with iron. Okay. So our foods have been fortified with iron since World War II. So not only creating lowered zinc, but resulting in mineral imbalance, right? So where there's too much iron, there is not enough zinc. And I believe we are overloaded with iron, which is very toxic and very inflammatory. And iron is known as the food of pathogens, right? So it is how they survive. Iron feeds them. And if you have so, no iron, you basically feel like crap as well, right? Yeah, well, true. But meaning, though, that goes down into another issue. But sometimes our anemia or our low iron is because we don't have enough copper to sort of direct that iron into the tissues. Mm -hmm. So, again, that's more biochemistry and nutrition, but that's a big issue. It's almost like it's anemia of inflammation. So do we not have enough iron? I think we do because we have so much fortified iron, but it's not getting to the right places. Mm -hmm. So, And then we have excess iron in our tissues, and so that's a big deal. And it throws off our zinc, which is, you know, what we're talking about here, though. And then we have, of course, older adults and vegans who are lower in zinc. So lots of zinc connections, for sure. We could talk um, a while about zinc. We just mentioned, okay. this is my team multivitamins. So they're like, I'm a team really, really good, robust in the right balance because you do need, you know, 15 to 1 ratio of zinc to copper. Otherwise, if you just take zinc, which I see people come to me with just taking zinc all the time, you create a copper deficiency. So anyway, I mean, we can leave it there. But I would just say, like, you got to have these things in balance. So anyway, that's sure. all I'll say about it. Okay. Yeah, so to title back, and then we can talk about UV light, which is a nice segue. But, you know, there are about four or five major papers out right now that in the integrative and functional nutrition space that sort of have their recommendations for nutrients and things like that. Nutrients, and there's even one in the integrative medicine, it's called Integrative Medicine, a clinician's journal, and it says evidence supporting a phasoimmunotherapy physiological approach to COVID-19 from prevention through recovery. And this is, I think, a really interesting paper. And it talks about what stage from prevention to recovery, we use what nutrients and what could help. Just for anyone listening who is a dietitian, I'm doing sort of a mini review of all these five papers that I will be putting in our newsletter, which is Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine. And the newsletter is the integrative RDN, but hopefully finishing this week, just a review of those five papers. Because I think sometimes it's overwhelming 
because so many things are useful, right? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, you can take 500 of this and 200 of this and make sure you get, you know, the green tea because it has ECGC, you know, like there's just so many different nutrients. And so I'm trying to use my journalistic skills and my nutrition skills and sort of just summarize it. So, you know, we this have like a path you. forward. Okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to mention that because it can be overwhelming. But one last thing about vitamin D and we can talk about because we wanted to talk about UV light. So we talk about supplementing vitamin D, but we also are a nation that, you know, is sunlight deprived. I mean, we're joy deprived. We don't go outside in nature as much as we used to. We're, we're living indoor lives. So sunlight gives so many more benefits than vitamin D, right? So it creates nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, right? Which opens up our blood vessels. It gives us endorphins. Importantly, like you mentioned before, it creates melatonin. You know, there's a lot of research on melatonin also as being almost as essential as vitamin C in the fight against, um, and I don't even like to use those words, but in the fight against COVID-19, a lot of people are using melatonin successfully. So maybe I'll send you another paper on that. But those are all things that we can get from sunlight. And not to mention, your whole last episode was about creating melatonin with sunlight and not degrading it with blue light from our screens, like being taking more care. And I can tell you, I have multiple people that are pretty health deprived. And they'll say, I finally started doing blue blocking and it makes a big difference in my sleep. So we have to start with some of those lifestyle things like well above supplementation. Like our body should normally be able to do this technically. We've just kind of changed our environment. Definitely. Absolutely. And then when we get into, like I said, sunlight, you know, there's also the, the infrared part of light, which is super healing. Okay. But if we just want to talk about like segue into UV light, right? So UV light, just so the audience knows, has been used in hospitals to sterilize equipment for decades because we know it kills pathogens, right? It kills viruses, bacteria, fungus. And of course, like that's how we get hormone D is from UV light, UVB light specifically. And just so we know how it happens, vitamin D makes proteins called catholicidins and catholicidins destroy pathogens. So UV light, super, super helpful. That's why also, right, we're in the middle, we're getting to the summer in most everywhere. And so UV light is more abundant and that's why we have less viruses, less sickness, all that stuff. I know you wanted to talk about the UV light treatment that's been discussed also. So yeah, so, you know, sometimes you see this stuff and then I ask someone who works in a hospital, I'm like, hey, is this like a thing yet? And they're like, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. So in April, a group of researchers at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles was looking at the potential for UV light basically put in the intubation tube. And so they actually had a preliminary study out. It published October 2019. And so this was like, they were looking at this before this all kind of was a big thing. And so this was in the United European Gastroenterology Journal, October 2019. And it was called Internally Applied Ultraviolet Light as a Novel Approach for Effective and Safe Antimicrobial Treatment. So not a ton there to that preliminary report. But essentially, they said this was the first study on an intracolonic UVA application. And so essentially, they were going to put it down. They, I believe, sampled. They used this in COVID patients. So a catheter was placed in the upper respiratory tract to kill viruses as well as other 
microbes such as those involved in pneumonia and surrounding cells. So the hope was that this could aid in the activity of the patient's own immune system. So that's all I'll really say about it. I'll include the information, but it kind of seems invasive, but at the same time, it's non-invasive. Like you don't have to take something for this. It is using light essentially. So they just thought that was interesting. And so if there's a little bit more, maybe another study, but I'll just include it in the notes. Yeah. UV light is just important, right? I mean, and so we can use it to our benefit for sure. So that, yeah, when I think I posted about that too, because it was, wow, I thought that was fantastic. But not being used in practice really yet. Maybe in, I mean, at least where I live, maybe it is in California where it was discovered. Well, we're in the boonies, right? Mm -hmm. So the only other thing that I really want to mention, which is super important about protocols is something called the MAP protocol. Again, Cliff Note version is MAP protocol, M-A-T-H stands for methylprednisolone, which is a corticosteroid, that's M. A is ascorbic acid, as we talked about, that's vitamin C. Mm. Then we have T, which is thiamine, which is B1. And then we have the H, which is heparin, which is an anticoagulant or a blood thinner. So basically, this started out as what's called the sepsis protocol from Dr. Marek and Dr. Verone and Yeah, they've had amazing success using this, like almost 100% success with people with serious COVID-19. And so it sort of addresses all the issues with more severe disease, which is the inflammation, the hypercoagulation, and the hypoxia. So they put in their explanation as optional. So the thymine, the B1 is optional. And they also use sometimes zinc and vitamin D in their whole protocol. They have Sadly, presented this to the White House four different times, including a Senate testimony on May 6th. And most people, of course, we don't hear about this, but they've had tremendous success. They have been using this since March with success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, I think that gives a good rundown of some of the treatments that are out there. I think that's awesome. Well, you were talking about people not getting outside. We were talking about the emotions earlier. And I'm just going to read this because I thought it was good stuff. It's kind of obvious, but I had pulled it up yesterday. I was closing my tabs for our today's recording, and I thought, I'm just going to include this. So this is from the British Journal of Health Psychology. It was published June 23rd, 2020. So the things that we know are affected majorly, right? But everyone says there's not enough, you know, around this. So actually, there's a lot of stuff when I searched PubMed yesterday, just kind of like the emotional stuff and the psychological stuff. So daily emotional well-being during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is what it says. Governments have responded by implementing self-isolation and physical distancing measures that have profoundly impacted daily life throughout the world. In this study, we aim to investigate how people experience the activities, interactions, and settings of their lives together during the pandemic. So they took a 604-person sample in Ireland. They checked them in March, and they basically assessed them, their emotional well-being, and how people spent their time. I just got a gig a lot of this. We found that while most time was spent in home, which was 74%, time spent outdoors, just 8%, so talking about our vitamin D, was associated, and this is why I'm so happy it's summer right now, so time spent outdoors, 8%, was associated with markedly raised positive effect and reduced negative emotions. Exercising, going for walks, gardening, pursuing hobbies, and taking care of children were the activities associated with the greatest effective benefits. 
homeschooling children and obtaining information about COVID-19 were ranked lowest of all activities in terms of emotional experience. These findings highlight activities that may play a protective role in relation to well-being during the pandemic and importance of setting limits for exposure to COVID-19 related media coverage and the need for greater educational supports to facilitate homeschooling during this challenging period. I thought that that summarized how I felt about life <laughs> in that time. And it was nice that it was in a study right there for me that the rest of the world felt the same. I had multiple clients that the stay-at-home order was very useful for them. They were able to kind of buckle down, focus on what they need to focus on and make great progress. And one friend, I mean, she lost a business out of the situation, but she said, I call this the great reset. And so honestly, it kind of sounded like it as I read this, it was exercising. Like these are the things we now are like, these are our options. So these are the things that bring us most joy. So anyway, just throwing in positivity here. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's just so much. Yeah. I think that feels very, it resonates with me and what's happening here. I mean, homeschooling, you know, yeah. Like, and, you know, I feel probably gratitude, right? Gratitude for health and for having enough to be able to have this not affect me financially. Also, I just want to say that the company I work for, so all wellness centers shut down in Maryland and Virginia and Culpeper Wellness Foundation paid their all their people throughout this time, even the part-time people based on the amount of part-time hours that they work each week, which is just not many companies can do that. Certainly, right, there's difficult to do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's so many business casualties, people who have lost everything. And, you know, I see that also around here, but they luckily, you know, um, at least as an employee and other people who you know, teach classes and other things. I mean, you know, so I feel like extremely grateful that, you know, I was able to get that and everyone else and all the other employees. So, and it was very rare. It certainly didn't happen a lot. So mm -hmm. I think we have to tackle the mask mm -hmm. situation. Sure thing. So these are the things that we can do from the outside, right? So probably the most controversial issue right now, you know, this is my opinion because it feels like everyone's anxiety is wrapped up in that argument. I believe this has also been fueled by mixed messages from, you know, all the things that we look to for authority about the messages from the CDC, the WHO, you know, and different expert doctors, you know, and some of these doctors are and are not experts in aerosols or respiratory droplets or immunology or all these things. So, you know, that's what's playing out. Even when people say, oh, I feel shamed for doing either, then the whole reaction and response is more shaming. So people not being reflective and analytical about their own responses too. And, you know, I have my own biases and it's like, I'm always trying to check those too. So one thing I always like to say, I say this all the time. I think I post about it. I always like to say that I can find a study to back up anything I want, right. Mm, or true. just to even put down anything I don't like. So, you know, in terms of masking up, gives us something to do in what feels like an uncontrollable situation, right? And so many have made masking, and we'll get to the science here in one second, have made it about an act of solidarity, right? And we can certainly respect that, you know, but where does the science play out? What does that say? And again, inconsistent messaging. So I basically have two or three things here. We have not a lot of science conclusive science, right, in either direction. I think that's the big issue. So we have a 2012 study about influenza and other respiratory viruses. And people are going to say this is too old. But 2012, it says none of the studies established a conclusive relationship between mask, 
slash respirator use and prevention of influenza transmission. That's one. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I just want to talk about two or three others. Then there's another one. This was really one of the only random controlled trials of cloth masks. This was in the British Medical Journal and in 2015. So this is a cluster randomized trial of cloth masks compared with medical masks in healthcare workers. In the conclusion, it says this study is the first RCT of cloth masks and the results caution against the use of cloth masks. This is an important finding to inform occupational health and safety. Moisture retention, reuse of cloth masks, and poor filtration may result in increased risk of infection. Mm -hmm. Further research is needed to inform the widespread use of cloth masks. So where I ended up falling, so this last study that I'll talk about, and then I'll talk about the opinion of, and this one podcast, which I thought was pretty well balanced. So on the CDC site itself, they did a policy review that they put up end of May. It said policy review, non-pharmaceutical measures for pandemic influenza in non-healthcare settings, personal protective and environmental measures. And they came to the conclusion, and this is on the CDC site, no significant reduction in viral transmission with the use of face masks. So I went further. And so there is uh, commentary by three different people. One is Lisa Brousseau, and she's a national expert on respiratory protection and infectious diseases. Margaret Sietzema, she's a PhD and an expert on uh, respiratory protection and an assistant professor of the University of Illinois at Chicago. And then there is the center, Dr. Michael Osterholm, O-S-T-E-R-H-O-L-M. He is from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. He's an infectious disease epidemiologist and director for the Center of Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. So lots of lots of words. So the three of them said a few things. The first two ladies said sweeping mask recommendations, as many proposed, will not reduce SARS-CoV-2 transmission as evidenced by the widespread practice of wearing such masks in Hubei province, China, before and during its mass COVID-19 transmission. So she said, you know, basically it changed any transmission. You know, a lot of people like to say, well, we are reducing this disease because of our mask wearing. And that isn't based in science, right? I can't find anything to just substantiate that, even though I believe in certain situations, and this is just my opinion, yeah, that it might be prudent to wear them. But it's very difficult to find any science to back that up. The thing I'll say, this is from Dr. Michael Osterholm. He had a podcast about this that has an excellent timeline and is about 30 pages long, um, way too long. But I believe it is worth for people who really want to dig deeper and then they can sort of go along the timeline that he talks about and, you know, look that all these things up for themselves. I just want to read you one basic thing. I know you said it, but just as a listener, he's the infectious disease epidemiologist and director for Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Right, exactly. So on April 3rd, the CDC published a document that had been anticipated following statements by White House officials the week before its release that this document would be forthcoming. The document calls recommendations regarding the use of cloth face coverings, especially in areas of significant community-based transmission, 
stated that in light of this new evidence, CDC recommends wearing cloth-based coverings in public settings where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain, especially in areas of significant community-based transmission. So this is him speaking. The new evidence the document was referring to was investigation reports and studies demonstrating possible pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic transmission. And this is me speaking before I go back to the reading. You know, so the whole premise of mask wearing is that the theory, possibly the theory, because we don't know for sure about asymptomatic transmission, right? So that is because we don't know. So therefore, let's be careful, right? And that's one way that external way that we can possibly do that. So I just wanted to say that. But so he goes on to say, quote, the recommendation was published without a single scientific paper or other information provided to support that cloth masks actually provide any respiratory protection. There were seven reports or papers listed as recent studies that detailed the risk of pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic transmission. There was nothing about how well such masks protect each other against virus transmission, particularly from aerosol-related transmission. You know, and he goes in to tell us his opinion about that. You know, he's not seen in his 45-year career such a far-reaching public recommendation issued by any governmental agency without a single source of data or information to support it. So then there is a study that says, I think the same study that I talked about when they did the randomized controlled trial, that cloth masks, they block about 3%. And it's still something. That's why they say none. But, you know, they also say, you know, that's the 2015 study. Yes, that's a 2015 study. So let me just read one more thing to you. And this was in the New England Journal of Medicine, May 21st, 2020, contributed by, you know, three different doctors and a nurse in public health. This is a quote from that, and I could send this to you too. We know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact within six feet with a patient with symptomatic COVID-19 that is sustained for at least a few minutes, and some say more than 10 minutes or even 30 minutes. The chance of catching COVID-19 from a passing interaction in a public space is therefore minimal. In many cases, the desire for widespread masking is a reflexive reaction to anxiety over the pandemic. So, you know, having said all of that. It's an unpopular opinion, Jenna. <laughs> super, super unpopular, right? And you cannot say this. There is very little science. But like I said, this is a matter of respect. It has become a matter of respect and solidarity. And you are open to lots of shame and ridicule if you don't. I feel like when two people are wearing a mask, we can use logic too, like logic and common sense. If there are many people in a close space and this virus is still circulating, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, it makes sense to protect our elderly. It makes sense if you're immune compromised, if you are vulnerable to different respiratory infections, it makes sense to be careful, like just in the winter season in general, right? I keep thinking of, so two things. One is, if anybody hasn't seen the Zach Bush interview, the Zach Bush MD interview about COVID-19, it's about a 90-minute interview. And so, again, this is a lot of information, right? But I really recommend that to everyone. I think he makes amazing points. And he says even, really good. you know, 
Yeah, it was just fantastic. And just in winter, maybe we should have been doing some other things that would have really helped people, that would have really lowered the death rate, like certain things that maybe we can do in the future. So I just recommend seeing that. And the other thing I think about is the study that you and I talked about earlier, and hopefully, yes, I still have it up. It's in the journal Toxicology. Mm -hmm. Called Uh, Wuhan COVID-19 Data, More Questions Than Answers. I believe so. Yes. I have it right in front of me as well. Great. So it basically said that the global lockdown has had nothing to do with the eventual disappearance of COVID-19 and that it runs its course in seven to eight weeks, regardless of public health measures. To quote it exactly, it said, were the public health measures indeed causal, as it is widely assumed, in halting the spread of the virus? Question mark. The data do not seem to support this conclusion. Well, and I think we could argue that is it halted? No, it is not halted. I mean, like, right. I'm, I'm not under the impression that it is. And this came out May 5th, yeah. so right. a month and a half ago. For sure. Yeah. And again, I go back to my original comment, right? I can find anything to support anything I think. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. But also, I feel like the goalposts have moved, right? So initially, it was, it's not overwhelm the hospital healthcare setting. And then all of a sudden, it became Let's stay inside and lock down until the disease is eradicated. So I think people are justifiably fearful, but we can't escape from this. I mean, and like I said before, this is everywhere and it is endemic, meaning based on what I've read. And again, I don't know if this is true because the doctors that I've read maybe don't know, right? Because we can't tell the future. But if it's endemic, then it will become like one of the coronaviruses that are already in circulation, like the four that we spoke about, that this will be another one, but it will lose its power uh, Mm -hmm. as it goes on. And this hopefully will be the path it takes. And so what are we going to do? Because there are more viruses. And I feel like our efforts, you know, as clinicians and practitioners have to really be focused on what we can do, right, mentally, physically, spiritually, to increase our innate immune systems, to decrease our deficiencies, to increase our resilience and all those things in order to protect ourselves the best we can so we can live our life and not have to close down a country or, you know, stop seeing friends, you know, every time something is circulating. And I believe we have the tools to do that. So immune health should have always been popular, but today it is really popular. And I would say I'm going to include this entire abstract from the toxicology journal article that we're talking about, because it's very questioning. It says, would a person have had a 29% lower chance during the second period when no public health measures were in place? You know, would it had this happened? I will just kind of read a little bit. It says, look at the modeling data. See that the lockdown of Wuhan airport on the 23rd of January would have delayed the spread of the virus to the rest of China by only 35 days. But since other airports in the country remained open until March, spread would have not been halted to all of Europe, USA, and the rest of the world. Considering that, although level one emergency was declared everywhere in China until the 29th of January, only 40% of all large cities implemented measures. Yet the modeling predicts that only with full level one response, the number of affected cases would plateau and decline. The data signature seems to suggest that COVID-19 infections run its course undetected for quite some time. And when it is detected, it is already in recessive mode. Might this be due to rapid mutation? 
which is cited, or due to the fact that there's a large number of infections that are subclinical with no major symptoms, or due to a molecular switch that switches off virulence once certain conditions are reached. So I think it's good to question things, right? And I just thought that their questions were valid and interesting. And so the Zach Bush interview is very fascinating because he talks about viruses, as we talked about last week. Again, really, it's like I formed these opinions after listening to other experts. You know, viruses become less virulent. And so, and as you were saying, we need to embody health and we need to redefine what does health mean, right? As I was talking to someone who works in another hospital yesterday, she said, you know, do people die of COVID-19 or do they die with it where we've already got a lot of other things going on? And so anyway, I appreciate you coming and I know that putting these interviews together is a bit, but it is a public service that just felt necessary at this point to be able to share like me, here are some research points sorry go ahead yes yeah well you just brought up something really cool that i just want to mention two quick points about yeah the comorbidities we haven't really talked about that but i will say like the two big studies or the two big points on that was something done i believe it was done in new york city 2020 i can't see the month but it was presenting characteristics, comorbidities, and outcomes among 5,700 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 in the New York City area mm. in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I remember putting this out there when this was first happening, and people were, like, very upset. But now that initial shock has worn off, and, you know, this is becoming more a part of our lives, you know, it's important to know that that study said 94% of the people had at least one chronic health condition. And again, these are just associations, right? But it's important to know that. And 88% of the people hospitalized, these are hospitalized people, for the virus had at least two chronic health conditions, right? So our version of what health is, right, is important. And the three top chronic conditions, 60% had hypertension, 40% had obesity, and 33% with diabetes. So this, again, just points to that our attention should be shifting to our collective metabolic health. What is going on that this is the state of health in America? And isn't this why we have been more affected than so many other people? And then in addition to that, just to corroborate that, I believe in Italy, the stats were similar. I think it was like maybe it was 90%. I don't remember exactly, but a lot. It was many. It was in the 90s where comorbidities were present. And just another Lancet cohort study was done on 1,150 hospitalized patients in New York City from March 2nd to April 1st, and 82% at at least one comorbidity. So again, yes, just to say to me, like, this is an outcry. This is like, okay, we have a lot of work to do, and we can do this in a short amount of time. Once somebody commits, like, as you know, to getting healthy, it doesn't take a lot to just you know, lower their inflammation, increase their health in a short period of time, you know, even within a few weeks to start making those changes. It's super, super possible. Mm -hmm. Again, I really appreciate all the effort that you've put into this. I know we still have a little bit of work to just, you know, shore up the show notes and make sure it's useful to people as possible. You know, I expected it to be even more controversial, but my bias was that it was kind of balanced. So thank you very much for providing that for us. I think we'll see how people receive this. And if you have comments about this at the last episode, we'd love for you to share them with us. You can go to my website, Less Stress Life or LessStressNutrition.com. And on the side widget, it's usually on the podcast tab. 
app, you can click on that little widget and you can record a voice memo to us. You can also send comments to hello at lessdresslife.com. But we would be interested. I'm sure they can rain a lot, right? Like this is a heated, this is an emotional topic. Well, I would love to hope that we're getting better at being able to discuss it because it's kind of part of us now that maybe we'll start to release some of the emotions because so much we make decisions based emotionally, right? And so the goal here, yes, there were some opinions, but the goal was to really just lay out some research and what's going on in the research and is it translating to policy? And if not, here it is for you. So there's a lot of it in one place. So. Anyway, I hope people enjoyed it. Thank you so very much for dedicating all this time with us. And I cannot wait to talk about magnesium and melatonin in future episodes. (laughs) More fun things, right? (laughs) For sure. Thank you so much for having me. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 